0: There, thanks for tuning into the St. Albans Five Docs Sermon podcast. We're a church in Sydney's Inner West, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. So, I've got two things to say by preface before I start the talk this morning. So, I'm very much aware that as a church, we don't tend to address a lot of ethical issues out there, issues of injustice, but we do tend to talk a lot about issues of sexuality. I'm very much aware of that. The philosopher Foucault writes that the characteristic of our age is not more sex, but more talking about sex. And church leaders are as guilty of this as anyone else. Um, I'm very much aware of that. But I'm going to be continuing to talk because I've been told to my boss. And also, because for those um, on the outside of the Christian faith, and for many within the Christian faith, our beliefs around sexuality can be a really significant hurdle to overcome. And so as much as I prefer to unpack a passage from, say, Colossians, which is our next series, because we're tackling the big issues in this series of sermons, we need to talk about this topic together. And second, just like last week, Today's topic, this morning's topic, is fraught because, of, because we've all got experiences and histories when it comes to this topic. Potentially things done to us and maybe things done by us. And so for some, the territory that we're going to be covering this morning is going to be difficult to traverse. And so I'll be as careful as I can. But if you need to step out at any point during this morning's sermon, we, of course, will totally understand that. And if there's anything that you'd like to chat to myself or Megan about in the coming weeks, we'd be really keen to, to follow that up with you. <clears throat> Especially since the sexual revolution of the 1960s, it's been hard to believe that Jesus' words in the area of sex and sexuality is truth that sets us free. For the first time in human history, through contraception and if that doesn't work abortion we've had a measure of control of the predictable consequences of sex and so began the sexual revolution forget about what anyone's told you your body is yours do whatever you like with it as long as it doesn't harm anyone that's the spirit of the revolution it's about liberation and it's about freedom And so with that being the dominant story regarding sexuality, freedom to do whatever you want, as long as it doesn't harm anyone, if that's the the dominant story that we're hearing about sexuality, it's no surprise that Jesus' ethic of sex, which is summarised as being for man, woman, marriage, and outside that, celibacy. It's no surprise that it sounds repressive, more like deprivation than freedom, maybe even dangerous. But... I think it's fair to say, if you've got your finger on the pulse, which I, I don't necessarily do, but maybe I do to an extent, the sexual libera- liberation story is, in some circles, and among many feminists, is beginning to fizzle out. That is, our society is beginning to see the underbelly of the sexual liberation ethic. So there's the Me Too movement, which has shone light on the fact that one's sexual liberation is another's sexual nightmare, And so with that, there have been discussions around consent. Do whatever you want, sure, but as long as it's consensual. There's got to be boundaries around sexuality, and the first boundary that's been agreed upon by just about everyone is that sex needs to be consensual. But of course, sex is is a flimsy boundary. How can you be sure there's consent when there's only two people in the room? Or what if there are invisible power dynamics at play in the relationship? And so when it comes to curbing the sexual liberation of the 1960s, some now want to go further. We don't just need consent. We need, according to a piece written for Vice magazine a couple of months ago, we need, this person says, radical monogamy. The author herself is a non-Christian, and she's explored the alternate options, polyamory and open relationships, and she's concluded, this is in her words, she wants to be one person's joy and delight, and I wanted them to be mine. And she calls this long-term committed one-to-one relationship radical monogamy. So we haven't yet returned to the Christian man-woman marriage, but we're getting close. And a recent book with the title, A Case Against the Sexual Revolution, written by Louise Perry, who again is a non-believer, she's a feminist and she's a writer for the politically middle, The New Statesman, she argues on scientific, historical and sociological grounds that the monogamous marriage model should be reconsidered in a secular society. So I'm going to quote her at length. She says, but while the monogamous marriage model may be relatively unusual, it's also spectacularly successful. She says, when monogamy is imposed on a society, it tends to become richer. It has lower rates of both child abuse and domestic violence since conflict between co-wives tends to generate both. Birth rates and crime rates both fall, which encourages economic development and wealthy men denied the opportunity to devote their resources to acquiring more wives instead invest elsewhere in property businesses employees and other productive endeavors then she goes on the technology shock of the pill led sexual liberals to the hubristic assumption that our society could be uniquely free from the oppression of sexual norms and could function just fine the last 60 years has proved the assumption to be wrong we need to re-erect the social guardrails that have been torn down and in order to do that We have to start by stating the obvious. Sex must be taken seriously. Men and women are different. Some desires are bad. Consent is not enough. Violence is not love. Loveless sex is not empowering. People are not products. Marriage is good. So they're the words of Louise Perry. All this is to say, as difficult and repressive as Jesus' sexual ethic might sound to our 21st century sexually liberal ears, Jesus might actually be onto something. What Jesus says about sexuality might even be good to us, good for us, which is a pretty rock-bottom assumption to have as a Christian, that what Jesus says is good for us. And so as we've done most weeks, we're going to work hard, getting to the heart of the issue, and then we're going to hopefully see the baby for what it is and so be able to throw out any dirty bathwater bathwater, any unhelpful, untruths that we might have picked up along the way. And there'll be a time for discussion or questions or responses in the middle of the sermon or towards the end. So the first question to ask is, what is sex really about? What is sex really about? The answers we hear to this question are various. Sex is really about fun. It's no more than the exchange of bodily fluids. Or uh, sex is about self-expression, an opportunity to, to be most authentically who I am. Or according to some, sex is everything. There's nothing more to life, really, than romantic attraction and sexual fulfillment. So that's the answers that we hear out there about what sex is about. But it won't surprise you to say, for me to say, that when Christians are asked the question, question what is sex about, the answers are different, or slightly different. So the first part of the Christian answer to what sex is about is that it's about unity. Sex is about unity. Unity. In the Genesis account, which we briefly looked at last week, it says that the two, the man and the woman, became one flesh, which is a euphemism for sex. Sex is part of the process by which the two become one. One author puts it like this. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. So sex, at least according to the Christian faith, makes a promise I belong to you. Um, in the 2001 movie, Vanilla Sky is not, it's not Tom Cruise's best movie. It's, it's nowhere near as good as his latest Top Gun. Oof, that was good. But, um, but Tom Cruise's character in the movie has a one-night stand with a woman played by Cameron Diaz. And later on in the movie, Diaz, her character, challenges Tom Cruise on this. And at one point in the movie, she says, don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? And one writer who writes on these subjects says what I think is pretty obvious. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that sex makes us feel deeply connected to another person, even when used wrongly. Unless you deliberately disable it or through practice you numb the original impulse, sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being as you are literally physically joined. So the promise that sex makes is a promise to be committed to each other, to be united, not just physically, but in every way, which is to say what's going on when the body comes together is meant to be a token of what's going on at a deeper level. So it's dishonest to have physical union without also having unions of other kinds, a legal union, an economic union, a personal union, an emotional and a spiritual union. C.S. Lewis likens sex without marriage to tasting without swallowing and digesting, to tasting without swallowing and digesting. And he goes on to say that sex apart from the context of deeper union is an attempt to isolate one kind of union, the sexual union, from all other kinds of union which were intended to go to go along with it and make up total union, which is, by the way, the reason why, according to the Christian faith, it's fitting for sex to be had in the context of Unconditional, lifelong promises of total union. So that's the first part of the answer. What's sex really about? It's about union. That's the first part of the answer. But the second part is on another level of significance. What is sex really about? Sex and marriage is about union, but they're about a union that's so much deeper. Sex and marriage are gifts that point beyond themselves, according to the Christian tradition. So let me ex- explain what I mean with another movie reference. So if you've seen Zoolander, you'll no doubt remember the scene where the male model, Derek Zoolander, who's very good looking and so therefore very dumb, which seems to be the main point of the movie, he walks into a room where there's an architectural model of a school that's been built for his, in his name. And so the architects are really excited to show him this model, but Derek is furious and he says, is this a school for ants? It's far too small. It needs to be at least three times bigger. The silliness of the scene is because he's mistaken the model for the real thing. And in our talk about sex and marriage, we too so easily mistake the model for the real thing. Sex is really, really about something so much bigger. So in the reading from Ephesians 5 that Tim read us just before, do you notice how Paul, he quotes from Genesis 2, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He quotes from Genesis 2, and then seemingly out of nowhere, he says, this is a profound mystery. But I'm not actually talking about man and woman, Paul says. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Paul's talking about marriage in that passage. But what he's really talking about is Christ and the church. Human sexuality has been given to us to point to a union that's so much deeper. As I said uh, before, our culture through movies, TV shows, magazines and more, sometimes holds a too low view of sexuality. It's just biology and the exchange of bodily fluids. But sometimes we hold a too high view of sexuality too, that our lives are made complete, whole, through our expression of sex. But when We look to sex to make us whole and complete. We're looking at the model. We're looking at the signpost, which is meant to be pointing away from itself. So it's common for people to think that our desire for God or religion or spirituality is really, whether you know it or not, a desire for sex. That's common for people to think. But the Bible flips that and says that our desire for sex is actually a desire for God. Our longing for sexual completion is a picture of a more intense longing that we have, a deeper union that we're made for. Human sexuality is a signpost to the ultimate love relationship. And so when Jesus walked the earth, he didn't just describe himself as the son of God or the Christ or the Redeemer. He described himself as the bridegroom. That's who God has always been. In the Old Testament, God wasn't a deity far off. He was deeply and intimately involved. He was a husband who made extraordinary covenant promises to his people. And his people weren't just worshippers. They weren't merely worshippers. In the Old Testament, the people were his bride. And so when Jesus arrives and describes himself as the bridegroom, he's saying that he is the one who's come to fulfill our deepest longings. He, our maker, has come to give us ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in a love relationship with him. And all this explains why Christians are so precious when it comes to sex and marriage. Marriage isn't ultimate, but what it points to is. And so that it's important it's important for us to keep the model intact exactly because it points to this greater reality. So it's a a bit like my late uncle's record collection. He kept his extensive records at the, the end of a long corridor. And whenever I was at his place as a child, there were rules. Only go so far down the corridor. Don't go further than this point and don't even think about touching the records. The boundaries that the Bible gives around sex are a little bit like that. And the 21st century's approach to sex pretty much has one rule, don't hurt anyone, which is a bit like my uncle saying, sure, play around with the records, lend them to your friends, but just don't hurt anyone with those records. Sex is just way too precious. The model is just way too significant for that to be the only guiding principle. So that's what sex is really about. Union and a much deeper union. So what does that mean for us? So I'm going to touch on all the big issues now with sound bites. Okay? So what does this all mean for us? Uh, The emphasis so far has been on our sexuality and because sex is about total union, it's inexorably tied to marriage, where promises are made for total union. But what about those who don't marry? What about singleness? And the first thing to say is that in a world that prized marriage and bloodlines even more than ours, Jesus was neither married nor sexually active, and yet he lived the fullest human life ever. He showed us what it is to be human, and in the process, he relativizes both sex and marriage. In other words, we don't need sex or marriage to be human. Spiritually speaking, being married or not married is neither here nor there. One state is not greater than the other. One's not more spiritual than the other. And how is that? It's exactly because marriage is a model that points beyond itself. The single person mightn't have the model, but they can have the reality. Sam Albury, a single, celebrate Christian, who's also gay, reflects on how he might never marry. And he's open about how at times this is a painful prospect. But he concludes, if I have Jesus, it doesn't ultimately matter if I get married or not. That That isn't the big deal in life. What is most essential isn't my marital status. What is most essential is knowing him because he's the bridegroom. He's the one who is ultimately satisfied. Which leads us to homosexuality. The simple truth is that the attempt to find biblical endorsement for homosexuality in any form is a failure. The text just can't be made to say what the revisionists want them to say. And the question is, why are the biblical texts so clear that marriage shouldn't be between people of the same gender? And the answer has something to do with because there's a reason why the model, the, the male-female marriage model, there's a reason why it has in built into it unity and difference. The model points to Jesus' love for the church, Jesus and the church. They're two realities that are very different, different but complementary. To erase the male-female difference in marriage would mean it would lose its bearing as a signpost to this greater reality. Unity and difference is essential for the model because it's pointing to a reality that's exactly that, and involves exactly that. And also a key feature of the union of Jesus and the church is that it's life-giving. In Romans chapter 8, it speaks about the renewal of all creation when the union of God and the church is consummated. And so it's important that the model has the potential for new life to flow from it. Now, what I'm going to say next is really important. Same-sex attraction is not the same thing as same-sex sexual activity. What the scriptures call same-sex attracted people to is the same celibate singleness that unmarried heterosexual people are called to. And so it's very important to say loud and clear that same-sex attraction does not automatically make anyone a sinner. And same-sex sexual activity is no worse than heterosexual opposite-sex activity out of marriage. Churches have done a terrible job at teaching this over the years. And so there's been lots of damage done. Shame's been weaponised against same-sex attracted people as if their sin's worse than all other, as if their attraction is a sin in itself. And whenever shame is used, weapon, weaponised like that, it's not okay for anyone who claimed to be followers of Jesus to do. And so I want to say loud and clear that there's no place for shaming of same-sex attracted people amongst us. Thirdly, it would be irresponsible because of its hold on our society not to speak about the problem of pornography pornography is a perversion of sex because pornography doesn't draw together people, two people in a relationship of mutual self-giving love it instead uses one person as a commodity to be consumed for the other person's pleasure. It's a perversion of sex and the statistics on porn are horrendous the science on porn is just as bad. It messes up with the user it'll change your neural pathways, it'll pervert your drive, it'll set unrealistic expectations and so if I can say to you now, if this, is, if this is something you struggle with, please do something about it today. Talk to myself, get in contact with Megan. Do something about this today. It's so important that what is done in the darkness is let out into the light. That's the first step. Aloise Perry, who I mentioned before, draws attention to the essentially abusive nature of this $100 billion industry the abusive nature, and she says that in the same way you never buy a product that you know was made by slave labour, she says, opt out of porn. Fourth, what about sex within marriage? Sex unites. It connects spouses together in intimacy and ecstasy, or at least that's the idea. But sometimes that's not our experience. And one of the things that can get in the way are ideas that are meant to be helpful but are deeply unhelpful. And so there's a great book that's been released in the last couple of years called The Great Sex Rescue, and it dives into a mix of ideas that's, that have been spread by conservative evangelical churches that have been detrimental to a spouse's experience of sex. The ideas in these books are often emphasising the sexual difference between men and women in the face, in the face of a society that erases them, But in the process, they've made sexual differences, the headline rather than the footnote. For example, it's common to read in some Christian books on marriage that men are so sexually different from women that men have a sexual desire that's basically uncontrollable and so it's the duty of the wife to sexually satisfy him whenever and however he wants and that it's her failure to do so that means he's not responsible for seeking sexual outlet elsewhere. It's bizarre. And just in case I need to say it, it's crazy talk. The issues that arise because of sexual desire differences in marriage are real and complex. But what is crystal clear is that there's absolutely no place for blame shifting either by the husband or the wife because he or she is the higher desire spouse. Which is all to say, even within marriage, for sex to actually be properly and mutually unitive, a joy, not a burden, the relationship has to be healthy outside the bedroom for it to be healthy inside the bedroom, and it takes work. And finally, what about when sex is misused? It's because sex is not nothing that sexual sin causes such profound pain. And it's because sex is not ultimate that sexual sin is forgivable. Sexual sin runs deep, which is why the gospel promises deep, real, perfect, no stain remaining, cleansing. And so if you're hearing this, and this is touching base with you, your sexual sin is not as bad as Jesus' atoning death is good. Good. And likewise, if you have been sinned against, hurt in ways that just won't go away, know that although you may not get an answer to the why questions, why did this happen? Why me? You do get an answer to the who questions. Who is with you? Who is for you? Who will never hurt you or forsake you or abandon you? Jesus knows what it is to be hurt, to be forsaken and abandoned, in the depth of his being, and he stands with you. Now, on that light note, we're going to um, to have an opportunity for any responses or questions or comments that you might have. And if you don't have any that you'd like to voice now, I'll be available after the service and all during the week for you to speak to, and Megan too. Any any, just thoughts? Yep, okay. Rules of thumb for having fellowship with, with, with these people. Well, I mean, it depends what you mean by fellowship. If you mean by fellowship, having a worship service together and coming together in, 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 and having, say, the Lord's Supper together. I wasn't that Right, right. Sorry. Um, no, 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 this is what it's about. Um, I mean, I'm, if anyone has any thoughts on this, I'll just open it up. Um, <laughs> um, any rules of thumb? I mean, the, the, the first thing to say is that if, if you... Um, I could refer to some resources if, if this is something you're interested in, but if you, if you do the historical work, it's very hard to read the passages like that. I'll just, I'll just say that. But that's probably not what you'll say to them when you see them the first time. Um, <clears throat> I, I mean, if if it's just like um, yeah, it depends on the depth of fellowship. I'd I'd embrace them, like I'd embrace any other person, if I don't know them very well. I'd want to get to know them more. I I think this is a hard question to answer. It depends on what you mean by fellowship. Yeah, um, but I'm keen to talk about this after if it helps. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then that's just key to to relate uh, to, to being. <laughs> To being a, a healthy person in our society, there are all sorts of views out there about everything, and, and the key is to hold on to your convictions in a way that is healthy, but also in a way that um, embraces the, the other. Yeah, yeah, yep, clear. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so, and so that was that was sort of sort of getting to the point I was making before. We tend to, because we talk about it a lot, we tend to um, we tend to elevate this sin as if it's one of the worst. Like yeah, for sure. And yeah, exactly. To to put to put this issue on a level playing field. It's just a really important start to have. And, and, and it's hard to do when, it, when we talk about it so much. But, um, but it is really important that, and I think we'll do this in a moment when we confess our sin, that um, when we're talking about sins of sexuality, we're not talking about a sin that is something we, don't, we all don't struggle with. Um, this, is a, this is a thing that is all of our problem. We're all in the same boat. And so it's really important that we, uh, we approach anyone from that perspective But not any better than anyone here. (laughs) So the question is, is basically how do we distinguish between sort of core issues and and not not core issues that we can sort of let fly and yeah 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 just you know an easy issue. Um, I mean, of course, I'm expecting that. (laughs) <laughs> i think i think it's 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 i mean one it's 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 whether the scriptures are, are, are clear on on this issue to it you know clear is a, is, a, is a word that needs to be fleshed out but whether they're whether they're clear when it comes to um whether it's a, a sin or not that that's one thing to say but i mean more importantly in getting to the is is how core is this to the gospel and the way I've tried to frame sexuality this morning is that it's it's, it's it's related significantly to the gospel, that sexuality and marriage points to the gospel. And so changing the model gets at something important to our faith. Um, so not only because the Bible says we should therefore um, not do this because it's a sin, but I, want, I, want to, I wanted us to sort of begin to see that there's a bit of a, a gospel logic to to the whole issue. And so to, to work out how, how key is this to the gospel is important. How key is, how key is this issue to, to the gospel? To understand the gospel. Okay. That is, that's, a, that's a really hard issue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, I think also what I wanted to show today is that the Christian logic for marriage is weird. I mean, who else says that marriage is a model for Christ and the church? Um, so, so I'm, I'm, I'd, I'd certainly, I'd certainly first add, I'm not, I'm certainly not judging, I'm not judging you at all, and, and actually, um, it actually makes sense for you in a, in a way not to live this out, because the reason I live out the way I, I the way the, the reason why I am married and and do what I do in marriage has deep roots, and they're in the gospel. And so, in a way, it makes sense that you don't you don't live according to this, this ordering of things because you don't you don't you don't you don't see the story you don't you don't believe the story, and I'm sure they'd be willing to admit that. Um, that's not to say that um, there is wisdom that applies to everyone in the way the Bible talks about marriage, but it is it is to give a sense of um, how how weird it is the Christian marriage ethic is, and. Um, and that it gives them freedom not to express that because they're not Christians. I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying it makes sense. For sure. Yeah. Yep. And that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there was quite a lot of money spent on the No campaign, if you remember, and that, that certainly put off sight a lot of people in, in, in with these identities. Um, and so all I can say to that is that if they ever do decide to come to church or if they ever do decide to connect with a, a, a church community, and church community, my hope would be that, and I'm sure we would, that we would surprise them with our welcome, that we wouldn't treat their issues any bigger than any other person's issue, that we'd just bring them in. We'd just say, hi, and how you doing? My name's Dave, and you, know, what you, what, you live around here, or whatever. I, we just, we just, we're just normal and welcoming and loving. That's my hope. And I'm, sure that's, I'm sure that would be true. and yeah, I've seen that happen week after week, the welcoming of the newcomer. Okay, they're gonna, we're going to tie it off. I was expecting a question about Leviticus, uh, John, but um, (laughs) since you didn't ask it, I'm not going to answer it. Okay, so... Okay, to close. uh, Jesus' words regarding sexuality, that sex is for men, women, woman, marriage, and outside that celibacy. Jesus' words don't fall easily on our sexually enlightened ears. But that's no surprise. Jesus' words have never... Fallen lightly on any culture's ears they 've always been countercultural the Christian ethic was revolutionary in the first century Roman world where men were very used to getting what they wanted sexually and it's countercultural today but if we can get past the offense, then we have an opportunity to see what the sign is pointing to that sex is a model pointing to a greater reality sexual expression has a particular context, marriage, because it's a precious model of a deeper relationship that might actually fulfill the longings of our hearts. Jesus, the bridegroom, loved us so much that he laid down his life. In his death on the cross, Jesus was cut off. He was made incomplete and unwhole so that we could be drawn in and filled up. And that's what we begin to find when we come to him. He fills us up. No one loses out following Jesus. Living according to Jesus' sexual ethic will mean that there will be times that will be difficult for everyone, not just the, the single person, not just the married person, for everyone. But if we have Jesus, we have the reality for which marriage is appointed to. And if we have Jesus, we lack nothing. Let's pray. Our great God, our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for giving yourself for us, for laying down your life for us, for opening up the, the way into your family, being a child of God. We thank you and we rejoice that we are your children. And that you've tied yourself to us with an unbreakable covenant. And that we will one day experience the consummation of the, of the relationship in the new creation when, when new life just flows out from, from your throne. And we pray, Father, we pray that you make us into a people that are characterised by this love. First and foremost, a love that reaches out, a love that lays down, a love that serves and embraces other people, no matter what their identity, no matter what their sexuality. We pray that you make us a people that others want to be a part of because your spirit is here, your Holy Spirit, your spirit of life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.